This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. You may be tuning in for the first time to 88.7. We broadcast here out of the studios in Beaufort, South Carolina. 100,000 watts of power God has blessed us with, and we're glad that you can hear today. Uh, This hour is designated for those who have questions as they've been studying God's Word or they're facing an issue in their life and they'd like biblical counsel. Uh, We'll do our best to answer questions that you have. Again, the number locally is 843-525-1859, or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is tbl, that stands for The Bible Line, tbl at wagp.net. We do give preference to live callers, and when you call, you don't have to go on the air live. You can simply dictate your question And we're happy to receive it that way as well. So let's go ahead and jump in and get started, Rick. All right, sir. Uh, As a matter of fact, speaking of dictated questions, we just got this one. Uh, What do you do with a relative who has consistently rejected Christ and, in fact, has made inappropriate jokes about him and claimed they are a Buddhist? This relative causes constant upset with family members. The question is, how long do you pray for and continue to have fellowship with this family member? Well, by fellowship, obviously, you're using the term loosely. Uh, the t- biblical definition, koinonia, fellowship, obviously, is in reference to a believer uh, with a fellow believer. So there is no fellowship with an unbeliever in that respect. And that's really what Paul reminds us of in Second Corinthians chapter 6 when he says, what fellowship has light with darkness? It's a rhetorical question. Of course, the answer is none. But uh, you obviously love and care for this person, It is upsetting if they make jokes, especially if they're of a blasphemous nature about the Savior. And again, if that were what was happening, I would definitely uh, speak the truth in love and say, hey, listen, you know, Fred, keep your jokes to yourself if you don't mind. They're very offensive to me, and I don't want us to have a combative relationship where you say things about, you know, my Lord, whom I love, in a disrespectful way, not to mention it's not healthy for our children, and I don't think most of the other family members appreciate it. So, again, you can can we agree to disagree and have that kind of settlement? So you can start there, but don't stop praying for the person. Uh, keep praying. As long as there's life and breath, there's potentially hope. Certainly a person can cross a line that they cannot cross back over, but that line is only known to God. Uh, in John 12, Jesus speaks of those who uh, would not receive Christ, and because they would not, he said they came to a point where they could not receive Christ. It's really a pretty fascinating passage. Uh, He was doing all kinds of um, miracles and signs and wonders, and and I read here in the 12th chapter that uh, even—it says, uh, for a little while longer, Jesus says— 
the light is among you. He's speaking of himself, of course, who's the light of the world. Walk while you have the light so that darkness may not overtake you. And he who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. So one, you might have a conversation where it's on a different level where you're not trying to share the plan of salvation, but trying to challenge them with the implications of their decision. You know, you could say to your, your relative, hey, look, if you're right and I'm wrong, it really doesn't matter. Because, of course, if you know what Buddhism teaches, it's a very eclectic approach to life, to religion, to the world. And it would not by any means uh, claim exclusivity. Uh, Buddha was a philosopher of sorts. And uh, much like Confucianism and other isms of the world, it does not claim that it's the only way that you can get to heaven. So you can say to your, your, your relative, look, if I'm if you're if you're right and I'm wrong, it really doesn't matter. But if I'm right and you're wrong, nothing else matters because Jesus didn't claim to be a good way to God or even the best way to God. He claimed to be the only way to God. And relative, if Jesus is not the only way to God as he claimed, then he's no way at all. Because if he claims to be the only way to God, and he's not, then he's a liar. If he's a liar, he's a sinner. If he's a sinner, he can save absolutely no one. But the Bible says there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So what you need to ask and answer for yourself is, are the claims of the Bible true? Have you ever studied any of the evidences to show the uniqueness of the Bible? And so you might give them my booklet asking them for their opinion how to prove the Bible is true. I originally wrote it for Answers in Genesis. It's a chapter in one of their apologetics books, but it, but it is available on Amazon. I don't make any money off of it, um, but go ahead and get that. Give it to them. Again, ask for their opinion, because sometimes if you ask someone for their opinion, you take them off of the edge, and uh, they're not as defensive and combative, and you might be able to have an intelligent conversation. But don't stop praying. But if they're not open, you can't you know, keep talking to someone who's not open, just pray that maybe there would be a change of heart. And I've seen people just like your relative, all of a sudden a disaster comes in their life. They find out they have cancer and they have six months to live. And now all of a sudden they're fearful. And, you know, so things could change dramatically very, very fast. So, so don't give up. Keep praying. Good question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and another listener would like to know, what do you think of Ron Rhodes' book on eschatology? Well, you say book. Um, he's written over 100 books. So I, I actually was on a platform with Ron a couple of years ago. Uh, Ken Ham invited us both out to... Uh, doing Answers in Genesis conference out there by the Ark, and he actually was the speaker that uh, came in, came right after me. So we had a good discussion. We both went to Dallas Seminary. Um, he's a, a good man. Uh, I, I can't say I've read all his books. In fact, I don't think I've read any of them. But I heard him lecture that day, and I know where he's coming from. He recognizes that there is a distinction between Israel and the church, uh, and that, of course, influences your your eschatology. Eschaton is last things. So eschatology is the study of last things. So when we're talking about the subject of eschatology, we're talking about end times prophecy. In fact, I have a course by that title at uh, Search the Scriptures. It's part of our Institute for Biblical Studies. It's called Eschatology. 
And that course might be really helpful for you to take so that you understand the critical issues about Ron Rhodes is a good guy. And um, he's about 10 years older than I am, uh, but he's an excellent Bible teacher, faithful, uh, handles God's word accurately. So even though I haven't read any of his books, and that's not to say I would agree with every line in every book. I don't think you can find two pastors who agree on absolutely 100% on everything. But uh, I, I know his heart, where he's coming from. I've heard him speak. I understand the basis of his eschatology, and you, I don't think you'll go wrong. All right, very good. Uh, Michael from Long Beach, California, emailed his question in to the Search the Scriptures website. He says, Dr. Brogy, have you been following Pastor Pittman's decision to leave the Southern Baptist uh, conference because of JV? Convention, SBC. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, because of J.D. Greer's decision to use preferred pronouns with transgender people. In other words, they. Uh, do you think Pastor Pittman is right? Yeah, by preferred pronouns, uh, he's referring to if uh, a man who is born biologically a male now identifies as a female, uh, the preferred pronoun would be she. And then they have some derivatives from there, like Z and some crazy stuff, but uh, no, I think J.D. Greer is dead wrong, and I think he's done a gross disservice to the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, he came out in the last month saying that, uh, you know, you can use the preferred pronouns, and he think that he, he his argument is that's a hospitable thing to do. That's a generous thing to do, and I would say just the opposite. I would say that you are walking too close to the edge. He came out a couple of years ago and gave a sermon about how the evangelical church needed to uh, apologize to the LGBTQ community for their abuse of homosexual people. That's nonsense. Uh, the, the, the evangelical community has not been abusing LGBTQ people, never have. In fact, they always op- uh, welcome such folks with open arms. And then he just came out this year since he's been the president of the SBC. And that sermon clip made its rounds through Twitter and the internet, basically saying that homosexuality was, you know, really no different from other sins. And why do we harbor on the sin of homosexuality? Why don't we harbor in the sin of lying or drunkenness or other things? Well, um, it, it, it's, it's a kind of statement, much like his so-called generosity by using the preferred pronoun of a transgender person. And, you, of course, you know there's no such thing as a transgender person. There's no such thing. God made you either XX or XY. There's no, like, in-between state that you are in, and you can't change sexes. Um, so it's just sheer nonsense. So he's doing a gross disservice by not saying, look, if you wanted to stand up and say, hey, look, uh, it's sad when people have abused homosexual people because they're homosexual, you know, made fun of them or, you know, possibly, um, you know, there have been physical abuse that have been done to homosexual people. And that's obviously totally antithetical to the, the teachings of Scripture. But if he wanted to say, hey, look, LGBTQ people are welcome to visit our church, but we want them to know that what they are doing is evil, it is wrong, and it will land them outside of heaven for an eternity unless they repent. That's the loving thing to do. And so when you walk on the edge and you call a he a she, 
you're basically endorsing a sin. You're saying that what God says is not true. You're propagating a lie. So what he did is, what he is doing is wrong. I, I sure hope he's defeated. Well, he will be defeated. He won't serve as the next president, but I hope I hope that his philosophy that he is propagating right now in the Southern Baptist Convention is defeated. And the Southern Baptist Convention is on a ragged edge. But is this pastor right for leading his church out? I, I, I've followed this pastor a little bit in terms of he's been all over Twitter and number of websites and, you know, have highlighted him and and his little video clip. If you just type in Pastor Pittman, J.D. Greer, I, I think it's about a seven or eight minute um, video that he has on YouTube, and you can you can listen to it. That's obviously his personal decision. There was another mega church pastor. This is a black pastor, Pittman, and he kind of tells his testimony, and he says, you know, when I was in seminary, I was debating, should I go with National Baptist or Southern Baptist? And so I, I decided to go with Southern Baptist, which was a wise move, because National Baptists, for the most part, are liberal. Uh, the, the National Baptist Church in America, for the most part, has left its roots, and it's liberal today. So he decided to go Southern Baptist, which was a big decision for him as a black pastor because he was not doing what was like the cool in thing to do to identify with National Baptist. But he wanted to identify with the truth and not with error. Um, with that said, uh, you know, I think that it, it, you should listen to the video. Rick just pulled it up. And so uh, it's definitely worth. In fact, Rick. Put the microphone up to the video. Let's play the first two minutes of the video. Can well, you do that? Well, I don't have a, a speaker in here from the uh, monitor, so I can't do it. Let me see if I can pull it up and see if I can find it here. And um, but but while we're blathering here, uh, let me just say that um, that's a personal decision. You see, I, I don't want people necessarily to leave because what we're talking about, at least at this point, is a small percentage of people who uh, basically are large influencers uh, in terms of what they're doing, um, but what they're doing is not good, um, and and you don't want to... Can you send me that link? Just email me that link. Sure. Yeah. What, what they're doing is not healthy by any stretch, but we're, we're talking about, with a B, billions of dollars in assets. So we don't want to see the Southern Baptist Convention go liberal. And they're making some really like crazy decisions right now in reference to women, in reference to uh, secular methodologies like intersectionality and other things like that that are just wrong. Basically, they're denying what they've been known for. You know, the Southern Baptists were always called people of the book, and uh, they're departing from that which is really, really sad, and especially concerning issues of the role of women. Uh, a lot of these uh, pastors are unwilling to stand up, but we shouldn't just, okay, hand it over. Now, if he makes that decision to lead his church out, that's a personal issue of conscience, and I get that. Um, with that said, you know, I would say I hope most pastors would not do that at this point, that they would stay in and do what happened in the 70s. You know, in the 70s, the issue was the inerrancy of Scripture. And uh, is the Bible the infallible, inerrant Word of God? And the Southern Baptist Convention had really drifted from that uh, teaching. And so 
there were people who were trying to say, hey, let's um, uh, l- let's let's protect our denomination. OK, here it is, Rick. So, Rick, I'm going to put it on here and uh, he has a little website, this black pastor called For Such a Time as This. Place where there is no such thing as a silent witness. It hurts my heart to make this clip. Um, was born and raised in a Baptist church, moved up to DC, did my undergrad, moved to Chicago, Illinois for a few years to work on my MDiv. And when I was in seminary, I had to make a decision to go either National Baptist or Southern Baptist. And at the time, the Southern Baptists were the most vocal, outspoken denomination in the country. If you remember in the 90s, the Southern Baptists used to have these resolutions and the news program used to go and, oh, my goodness, the Southern Baptists, did you hear what they said about marriage (laughs) and men and women and homosexuality? And the the secular world used to go crazy that the Southern Baptists dared to say this is what the Bible says and this is what we believe. Therefore, I affiliated with the Southern Baptists. That was in the mid-90s. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. <sighs> the Southern Baptist has, has elected a president, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, his name is J.D. Greer. And I saw an article that said he will now start using the preferred pronouns of transgender individuals. So he will not he will now start calling use the pronouns of she and her. People okay, let's. Subpoena. That's good. That's good. So anyway, he. Um, we'll we'll leave it at that. But you can you get a flavor of where he's going. I want to be careful there. We have a lot of children listening. So uh, with that said, I think what uh, Pastor Pittman is doing is it's an issue of conscience. But he's right to to stand up against J D Greer. J D Greer is a wimp. He likes to be liked. He's a wimp. He's a disgrace to evangelical Christianity. I do not support him. Uh, It's very, very sad what that man is doing and how he's leading one of the strongest Protestant denominations uh, down the wrong road. And I hope that the next president who will take his place will take the bull by the horns and lead them back to some of their roots. Anyway, he goes on. You can listen to the video online, and he actually has... um, the actual quotations, the video clips of J.D. Greer and the words that he speaks. So it's very enlightening. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And uh, Michelle from Savannah would like to know, are we to tithe monetary inheritances? And then secondly, are non-members but frequent visitors and family of church members allowed to go to your Israel trip tour. All right, let me deal with the first uh, question. Do we tithe monetary inheritances? You know, when my dad and mom were alive, they began to want to give away certain amounts of their money that they had. And at the time, I think it was like 
you could write a child a check up to $10,000. I think it's like 13000 now uh, without and give it as a gift, and, and that person would not have to pay any tax on it. So I've been down this road just a little bit. And so, yeah, if someone writes me a check for $100 and says, Merry Christmas, I'm going to give at least $10 back to the Lord. If my parents give me a check for $10,000, I'm going to write a check for at least $1,000 back to the Lord. That's the tithe. And if I were to inherit a large sum of money, yes, I would give a tithe. Where does it belong? To your local church. So whatever local church you're engaged in in Savannah, that's where your tithe belongs. Now, if you want to give an offering above the tithe to, you know, somebody, you know, Christian organization, some work of the Lord, great. But your tithe belongs to your local church. And so, yeah, whatever God puts in your hand, you give it back to the Lord. Second half of your question concerns whether you have to be a member of CBC to go to the Israel trip. And the answer, of course, is no. In fact, I would say about a third of the people who went to the last trip with me to Israel were just listeners through uh, our radio ministry, some from, I think we had one trip, we had like people from 10 different states that came so um, anyone can come. It's open to anyone. Uh, we hope in January of 2020 to go ahead and put out the new brochure, and God willing, the trip is planned. It's not locked in yet uh, with the Israeli government and the uh, tour agency I use, but we're looking towards the end of May 2021. So it will be 18 months from January that we hope to go to Israel Um, What we'll do a little bit differently this time, because the trip tends to fill up, is I'm going to open it up first to people who've never been before to give the first-time people an opportunity to sign up before it's full. Because what happened last time is people, oh, they wanted to come, and we had a few second people, and I I want people to go a second time. In fact, it's the second or third time where a lot of the things really begin to sink in and solidify. Um, But we're going to give a first shot to uh, people who've never gone before, and then we'll kind of go from there. Anyway, great great question, Michelle. Hope you can come to Israel with us May 2021, Lord willing, if Jesus hadn't come back yet. All right. Frederick from Cleveland, Ohio writes, what kind of bodies do people have in hell? All right. let uh, Let me turn to a passage in the Gospel of John that addresses the subject of the resurrection. Uh, Jesus, I'm reading now from John 5, verse 25. He said, Truly, truly, I tell you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him, the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, let me just first say, parenthetically, that almost sounds like salvation by works. Those who did the good, though deeds are in italics in the NES, meaning it's not in the Greek, but it's added because it's implied, and it is. Those who did the good to a resurrection of life, those who did the evil or evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Uh, why is he saying that? Well, he's just taught salvation by grace alone through faith alone. In fact, he just said before this paragraph began, truly, truly, I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes him who sent me has, right now, present tense, 
eternal life, does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Jesus has been hammering salvation by grace alone through faith alone. But when you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, the faith that saves is never alone. It changes your life. There's a new direction. It's impossible to be born from above, to be born again, to be a new creature in Christ Jesus where all things have passed away and all things have become new and not to change. And so that's the point he is making, that there are basically two kinds of resurrection. There's the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked. And the wicked are those who have never received Jesus as Savior. Why? Because we're all wicked by nature, and we need a Savior. You don't have to have committed murder or rape or robbed a bank to be called wicked in God's sight. He deems all as being unrighteous in his sight. But the fact is, is that both believers and unbelievers will get resurrected bodies. And this, by the way, is not simply a New Testament truth. It's taught in the Old Testament. For instance, uh, let me just turn to Daniel chapter 12. Now, at that time, Michael, speaking of Michael the archangel, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. He's talking about the great tribulation. Jesus almost verbatim quotes this. And at that time, your people, everyone who's found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So the Bible teaches there is a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. And the fact is, is that when an unbeliever dies, just like a believer's body is not suited for heaven, the unbeliever's body is not suited for hell. In the parable, some would say it's not a parable, but a true story. If it is a parable, it's the only parable where Jesus actually names a person in Luke 16 of Lazarus and the rich man. And if you remember, the rich man died and went to hell, not because he was rich. Many of God's people are rich and have been used marvelously of God. Um, But he dies and goes to hell because he's an unbeliever. And if you remember, he feels torment. He's in agony. He's begging someone to give a drop of water on his tongue. He's in a real body of sorts. Now, is it the final body? Is that what's in view? Well, the fact is, is that, you know, when a person dies today, they're not in their resurrection body. They're awaiting the resurrection of of the righteous and the wicked are awaiting their resurrection body. But it's some kind of intermediate body. I mean, Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration were not disembodied spirits, They were real people, real recognizable people, which, by the way, when you see your loved ones in heaven, you will know them. You will recognize them. Uh, You will know precisely who you are looking at. But with that said, just like you need a new body suited for heaven, the unbeliever needs a body suited for hell. Look, a person in hell is in a place where the worm never dies and the flame is never quenched, Jesus said. In other words, they're not annihilated. They're not brought into hell on their natural bodies and burned up, and that's the end. No, they live forever and ever and ever. And so just like our earthly bodies are not fit for heaven, neither are the earthly bodies of an unbeliever suited for hell. But with that said, God doesn't want you to go to hell. God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so to answer your question one word, what kind of body will they get? A resurrected body. 
The believer gets a resurrected body. The unbeliever does as well. And that's both sides of the Easter message. Unfortunately, we often only hear one side of it. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Good morning. Hey, how are you doing? How can we help? Uh, Dr. Brogy, this is Tommy Kelly. Um, I'm pastor of the First Baptist Church of Barnville, and when I was convention president, I called out a, uh, a pastor, Perry Noble, for perverting the truth, and you gave me a shout-out and supported me in that. I'll, first of all, I want to thank you for that because, you know, he is perverting the truth, and we have gotten away from a, as a convention from God's inerrant word, and thank you for that, first of all. Well, appreciate that, Tommy. Appreciate your ministry standing strong out there in Hampton County and for Christ. We need more pastors like you, and thank you for your leadership when you were president over the state and convention. I, yeah. Well, thank you. And I have a question. One yes, of the sir. Things, you know, since I've been pastor, we've had a lot of pastors perverting the truth. Uh, for years, some of them did not believe in the virgin birth, which was theologically just a farce. And now we've got a group of pastors that say, once you become a Christian, you can no longer sin. And a lot of our folks are going to the, are fleeing to those churches. And I'm just saying, listen, that's, that's totally wrong. And I just wanted to, uh, for you to address that, that people may be listening on a, on a larger scale so that we could have people to know the truth. Yes. So if you would answer that question as best you could, thank you so much. Appreciate it, Pastor. Well, it's called the doctrine of perfectionism that when you are born again, that you will never sin again. That's just wrong. That's erroneous. Remember, there are three tenses to salvation. We've been saved in the past from the penalty of sin. We call that justification. We are being saved in the present from the power of sin. That's spiritual growth. We call that sanctification. And someday we will be perfected. We'll be saved from the presence of sin. That's called glorification. When we see him, we'll be like him. Uh, we'll have resurrected bodies. We'll never, ever, ever sin again. Everything in word, thought, and deed that we will do at that point will be holy, but that's not yet. That's in the future. That's glorification. So, for instance, in First John, uh, John is writing so that we can have fellowship with God the Father and His Son, and he says, if we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness— we lie and do not practice the sin. It, uh, we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Now listen to this. He says, if we say we have no sin, and that's what you're saying some of these pastors are teaching. Oh, I don't sin anymore. Well, give me 30 minutes with your wife and your best friends, and let me get their opinion to see if you really sin anymore. I guarantee you sin. Uh, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And so, you know, some of these people I, you know, who, who teach perfectionism, well, I don't sin, I just have some weaknesses. Well, your weakness, God may actually call a wickedness. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That's self-deception. A pastor who says that he no longer sins and is teaching that to people in his church, and they're believing it, they are deceived. If we confess our sins, why should we confess our sins if we don't sin anymore? And by the way, this has nothing to do with salvation, 1 John 1, 9. It's not a salvation verse. It's written to save people, people who are already born again, the little ones, the children that he's speaking of throughout this book. 
if we so if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's talking not about how to establish a relationship with God. If that's how you became a Christian, oh, you just confess your sin. Jesus could have come to earth and said, you know, my father's just really forgiving. And if you're really sorry and you just confess your sin, he'll forgive you. He could have skipped the cross and shot straight up into heaven. No, God has to have a basis by which he forgives you. If I stand before a judge having committed some heinous crime and I'm crying and weeping, I say, I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me, judge? And he says, I can see those are real tears. You're free to go. That would be an injustice. He would fall off of his, uh, you know, chair of, of justice, and he would be a terrible judge. Well, God would fall off of his throne of righteousness if he just indiscriminately let people go. No, the wages of sin is death. Death is the penalty, and that's the price that was paid on the cross. And so to people who are saved, when we sin after we're saved, we are not confessing our sin in order to get saved again or to reestablish a relationship. I just read John 5, 24. He that believes in the Son has life, has eternal life. It's eternal. You can never lose something that's eternal. We're talking about maintaining intimacy with God. Then the next verse says, if we say we have not sinned, listen now, 1 John 1, 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Look, if some pastor stands up in the pulpit and he says, we don't sin, we say we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's God's goal, that we be holy. And if anyone sins, why? Because we do. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So he's not saying 1 John 1, 9 is a verse that you can abuse. Oh, I'll just, you know, go out and get drunk, and God says if I confess it, then, you know, I'll be okay. No, he, he he's saying this Christian bar of soap, so to speak, is there for us as believers uh, so that if we do blow it, God can cleanse us, and that's a motivation not to sin, not to abuse the grace of God. The grace of God that brings salvation, Paul will say in Titus 2, teaches us to deny worldliness and godliness and to live holy and righteously in this present age. James says we all stumble in many ways. So the doctrine of perfectionism is just gross error. It's not taught in the Bible. Read Romans 6, 7, and 8, and you tell me if Christians don't sin, and I'll give you $100, but it's not true. And um, the Bible is so clear. And so if someone were in a church like that, they should leave. You're under a man who's not qualified to be a pastor. He's deceiving people, and he's deceived himself. Let's go to the next question. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and George from Charleston writes, on The View, are you familiar with The View? Uh, isn't that those five women? The five women. Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. Those women. I remember, uh, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. so he writes, yeah. on The View. Because there used to be a born-again <laughs> Christian on that. I don't know if she still is, but yeah. go ahead. Anyway, he says, which is probably not your favorite TV show. <laughs> An argument was made against the Christian who refused to bake a wedding couple, a uh, wedding couple, uh, wedding cake, rather, for a gay couple that he was not being consistent. As they interviewed him, they asked him if two heterosexuals had a baby out of wedlock or were living together and wanted to get married, would he make them a cake? 
They had a point, yet I respect his decision not to make the cake for the gay couple. They went on to say that he was judging such people, and Jesus said, we are not to judge. So how would you answer their argument? Well, it's a good question, but there's a fundamental difference between the two examples that you've just presented to me off of this uh, show. And I've not seen this episode, but I'm assuming what you're saying is, is, is accurate. And the first scenario where you have two people of the same sex who want to get married, and he doesn't want to celebrate that as a cake baker by saying, hey, listen, um, I want to. And if this is the same guy who, by the way, and my guess is it probably is, who's been to court over this. He said if a gay person came in, hey, I need a birthday cake. Great, I'll make you. What, what do you want? He, he drew the line in his mind over gay marriage. Why? Because he would be using his skill to endorse something that God calls an abomination. God calls this a wickedness. He calls it an abomination. And if you're not sure, that's what the Bible teaches. And here's what's happening. We've got more and more people who have like a child who's become gay. And of course they love their child. Of course they love their child, hopefully unconditionally. But the conclusion that they make is, well, maybe it's not all that bad, and and they really love each other, and they're being driven by the culture rather than by God's Word. And so God's Word is clear, and if you're not sure on this, I have a a message, is it okay to be gay? And if you type it into YouTube, it will come up, or you can get it at uh, searchthescriptures.org, and you can download it if you have the Search the Scriptures app and listen to it when you're out raking leaves or cutting the grass or driving down the highway. Uh, But I go through every passage in the Bible that deals with the subject of homosexuality. I look at them in their context. I explain how uh, the false theologians of our day argue around these passages. They say they don't apply anymore or they reinterpret them. They're twisting the scriptures to their own destruction. So in the first case, he is protesting because he is not going to endorse something that God calls evil. And there's no such thing as gay marriage. Now, the Supreme Court of the United States can call it gay marriage, just like someone can say, well, I'm transgender. You're not transgender. God made you male or female. There's no in-between. And there's no such thing as gay marriage. You can put that that adjective in front of marriage, but it doesn't make it true. Marriage, biblically, is between a man and a woman, period. That's what Jesus taught. Someone said, well, Jesus never spoke on the subject of homosexuality. Yes, he did. He clearly spoke on it. Have you not read the scriptures that he made them male and female for this man? For this reason, a man shall leave his wife, um, a man shall leave his parents and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one. He was very specific of what marriage is and what marriage is not. So don't say he didn't address this topic and not to mention he endorsed all of the scriptures as being true. He said a single word could not be broken. So everything God said in the Old Testament on homosexuality is just as true today as it was in Jesus's day as in the day Moses recorded it. In the second scenario, you have two people, you say, what a baby out of wedlock, and what's the other one, Rick? Um, uh, let's see. This oh, people or living together and they right. want to get married. Well, what they're doing is they want to do what's right. Now, uh, again, they may be unbelievers and want to get married, but understand that 
marriage is not simply a Christian institution. It's a human institution that God instituted for saneness in the society and for the health of little children that God deeply admires and warns us against abusing them. And I feel just sad for some of these kids who didn't ask to be born into some of these families and raised in some of these homes and to have two gay mothers or two gay daddies. You know, they they didn't ask for this. And, of course, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But in the second scenario, he's actually endorsing something that is right. Now, if uh, if two people came and he knew, say, uh, one was a believer and one was an unbeliever, and they said, we want to get married, will you make a cake for us? And he said, no, I can't do that. Why can't you do that? Because you're going against Scripture. A believer is not to marry an unbeliever. So you're asking me to celebrate and endorse something that God says is wrong. And so he would be right in that case to refuse making a wedding cake for them. But, the, you know, you're, you're mixing, or the, the view is mixing oranges and apples. There's a huge, huge difference. And when Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged, let's also quote John's gospel where Jesus said to judge with righteous judgment. You know, you can make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean if you take a verse out of context. The Bible says there is no God, but contextually it says the fool has said in your heart there is no God. In fact, Jesus will go on in that passage in Matthew 7 and talk about judgment. You have to make a decision when he says a few verses later, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearl before swine. Uh, that's a John seven twenty four decision, judge with righteous judgment or they'll trample it under feet. And so you have to be discerning. You have to make a judgment. I'm going to withhold the gospel in this situation because of the utter animosity and hatred and mockery that this person is making over the message. That's a judgment you make. So when God has made a judgment, you're not judging the other person. You're just saying what God has said. When you say two people living together as heterosexuals outside of marriage, that that's wrong and sinful, you're not judging them. God has said that, and God says, do not be deceived. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, and on the list goes, shall inherit the kingdom of God. But the next verse gives anyone hope, but such were some of you. God can save anyone. The gay person, he can make him a new creature. The fornicator, the adulterer, the drunkard, the self-righteous, whatever you are, God is in the business of saving men. Jesus said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Paul will say, it is a trustworthy statement. It deserves your full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, David from Seabrook writes, thank you for this past Sunday's devotional. That was great on Isaiah. Can you give me the outline you gave then? I'm assuming he's talking about Isaiah 6. 714, 536, and 9. Uh, I couldn't write it down fast enough. Okay, I'm not sure what you mean by the outline, but if you mean the outline by the, of the book, which I gave at the start of the sermon. The flow that you yeah, went through. Yeah, so, so here's, um, and I guess we didn't air that because it was a musical, so people didn't hear it, but I did give a 10, 15-minute devotional, depending which service you're in. I gave it a little longer at 11 o'clock because I didn't have a gun to my head to end the service. Uh, But the book of Isaiah is like the Bible. There's 66 books in the Bible. There's 66 chapters in Isaiah. 
Uh, that's one little memory uh, hook that you can grab. But it interestingly divides the same way as the Old and the New Testament. There are 39 books in the Old Testament. It's a message largely of law. It's a message that man is condemned and needs forgiveness. And so that's the subject of Isaiah 1 to 39. It's a prophecy of condemnation. Three times nine is 27. There's 27 books in the New Testament. So Isaiah 40 to 66, the last 27 chapters, are a message of of comfort, of consolation. So the first is a prophecy that man is condemned. That's not to say that there's not any verses in there that give little isolated pieces of of hope. There are, but the fullest expression uh, comes 40 all the way through the end of the book. And interestingly, chapter 40 of Isaiah begins with a uh, prophecy uh, concerning John the Baptist. Let me just turn there for a moment. In Isaiah chapter uh, 40, Um, he says, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert, a highway for our God, let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. So it starts with this prophecy that the New Testament quotes in the gospels is being fulfilled in, um, John the Baptist. So for instance, in, let me just turn to Mark one, because that's the earliest reference Uh, Mark 1 says in the opening verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a message and so forth. So interestingly, Isaiah 40 opens like the New Testament opens. And so in Matthew's gospel, in the... Uh, early chapters, again, you, you find in chapter 3, the preaching ministry of John the Baptist. In uh, Luke's gospel, same scenario. Uh, you find the forerunner born, his birthers are recorded. We often talk about that at Christmas in Luke 1, but then his public ministry just a short time later. John's gospel in the opening chapter as well, you find the ministry of John the Baptist. So Isaiah begins like the New Testament begins, It goes through the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and it ends in the revelation with the sovereign reign of the Messiah of Jesus on the earth for a thousand years. And then the new heavens and the new earth. That's Isaiah 40 through 66, the last 27 chapters. The forerunner, the predictive uh, death, burial, and resurrection in Isaiah 53, the literal reign of the Messiah on the earth where the lion lays down with the, uh, the lamb lays down with the wolf, the lion next to both and eats grass and the cobra next to the baby's nest. That's, that's not heaven. That's, that's the new earth when the earth is regenerated during that thousand years. And Isaiah said a man's life will be like that of a tree. Um, and then he sees a new heaven and a new earth, exact same pattern in the revelation that we see. So that's, that's the book of Isaiah in a nutshell, uh, two halves, one largely dealing with law, second half dealing with grace, one reflecting the Old Testament with promises of the coming Messiah, and then how it's going to be enacted very specifically. You know, Isaiah is the most quoted book in all the New Testament in terms of any Old Testament book. Isaiah is quoted more than any book in all of the Old Testament. So I went through, let's see, in my mind, Isaiah 6, 
um, and in uh, or Isaiah six, yeah, six, where he has this vision of God's holiness, and you know, I'm a man of unclean lips, and that's what we need to see that we're all men of unclean lips, that we're fallen, we're sinful. Then in Isaiah seven, there's the promise of a, a virgin is going to see conceive and give birth to a, a baby. And uh, Isaiah 9, the baby's name will be called Mighty God. And then Isaiah 53, where he'll be pierced through for our iniquities. So it, it just reflects beautifully. You know, it's not by accident that Isaiah is often called the fifth gospel. Uh, there's one author, by the way, we had a question a few weeks ago about multiple authors on Isaiah. And whenever you ha- meet a pastor who talks about Deutero or some even Trito, Isaiah, that there's three authors, you're listening to someone who is either A, just totally ignorant of what the New Testament reveals about Isaiah, therefore not uh, qualified to be a pastor, doesn't understand basic doctrine, and that's a qualification for a pastor. Or B, and in most cases, he's just a flaming liberal and doesn't believe what God revealed, making Isaiah a liar, making him less than a prophet, making Jesus a liar, making Paul a liar, making Peter a liar, because Isaiah is repeatedly quoted and given credit to all three parts of the book, one author, not three, not two. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, Paul from Hilton Head writes, why are there so many different interpretations of Scripture among pastors and seminaries today? The Bible is very clear. The Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures. There are no errors in the Bible, and the Holy Spirit illumines the truth of the Scriptures to us as our guide and teacher. And when did the teaching of hermeneutics originate in seminaries? Please help me with these questions, and thank you for your time and assistance. Well, it's a good question, and, you know, there are a number of reasons why people interpret the Bible differently. Uh, A primary reason is you have sometimes unbelievers in the pulpit. And a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot appraise them because they're spiritually understood. So we had, you know, Tommy Kelly, a pastor, call in just a few minutes ago, and he's in an area where there's a number of cooperative Baptist churches. Cooperative Baptist churches are heretics. They are heretics. They are wolf, wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. Uh, they are twisted the Scripture. Uh, how, can a, how can a pastor say he's faithful to the Scripture and be a cooperative Baptist when, for instance, cooperative Baptist churches in this state, like First Baptist Church of Greenfield, are doing gay marriages? They can't. And the sad thing is, is that they use the words of historic Christianity, and to the unsuspecting, they think, oh, this guy's orthodox. He says the Bible's inerrant. Well, he has a totally different definition of inerrancy than the one that is revealed within the Scripture itself. And so they're not inerrantists. They started on the premise that the Bible is not the infallible, inerrant Word of God. But they attract people, you know, with some of their teachings, like, oh, you know, a woman, you want to teach? You want to be a pastor? So one of the hallmarks of cooperative Baptists is that they, you know, ordain women. Look, that's wrong. That's against Scripture. It's diminishing the role that God has given women to play in the body of Christ. So sometimes you have unbelievers who are in the pulpit. So that's a reason. But assuming you're talking about evangelicals, on the main things, we're all in agreement. Uh, there are some things that good God-believing, you know, born-again uh, pastors differ on, and sometimes because they're unqualified to be a pastor. Look, there's a lot of people in the pulpit today who shouldn't be in the pulpit. And that's why God warns about just too quickly laying hands on someone. We're, we're to take some a thoughtful approach. Or sometimes a pastor can take a system of theology 
that he's committed to, and he lays that over the scripture. So if someone, say, is a covenant theologian and sees no distinction between Israel and the church, and he starts with that premise, then he's going to look through those rose-colored glasses. Let the scriptures speak for themselves. Let the scriptures say what they say without our having to manipulate them. So that's Augustinian theology, and it's not healthy. It came into Roman Catholicism, and a lot of the Reformers who were saved out of the Roman Catholic Church carried some of that baggage with them. Um, But for the most part, you know, the challenge in our day is we got, A, either men who are not qualified to be pastors, or B, men who are pastors, and they just don't study. And some of them, I'm not saying they're lazy. Some of them are killing themselves doing all the wrong things. You know, a high priority in our life every week is to study the scriptures. That when we walk into that pulpit, we've poured over it, we've prayed over it, we've thought over it, we've let the scripture interpret itself. And uh, and a lot of pastors aren't doing that, and that's why some of their approaches and some of their interpretations are so wacko. Okay, I think we've got time for this quick question. I love WAGP, Daniel Hilton Head says, but wonder why are you carrying Dr. Robert Jeffress when he endorses a false teacher? Well, I am assuming you're talking about his endorsement of Paula White, and um, I guess it's come out, especially in the news again in the last couple of days, because he was challenged. I saw it yesterday on Yahoo News as well, and so I'm assuming maybe that's uh, the reason behind it. Uh, He was not alone, by the way, in endorsing Paula White's book uh, called Something Greater. Uh, Also... Some of the people endorsed it was uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., uh, Greg Laurie, Franklin Graham, Ralph Reed, Jack Graham. Um, To Franklin Graham and Greg Laurie's credit, they took their endorsement down. Um, You know, Dr. Jeffers was just wrong. Now, here's what these guys had in common, and I didn't know this until yesterday, but when the question came up or my comment came up recently, um, it wasn't a question someone asked. I just made a comment how upset I was over Dr. Jeffress. They're all on the evangelical advisory board to the president of which this woman chairs. Look, she's, she's not, shouldn't be in ministry. She's not like a woman at the well who's a saved out of, you know, five marriages. She's in the ministry. And while in the ministry, you know, has an affair, for instance, with Benny Hinn, one of those, you know, faith healer evangelists. Broke up more. She's on her third marriage, not to mention she's a woman pastor. She, she She's not supposed to be a pastor. But I guess these guys didn't want to upset her because they want to stay huggy-huggy to the present. We need some John the Baptist who will walk into the Oval Office and say, Look, President Trump, this is what God says. And if you want the evangelical voice, this is what we're going to say. And we need some people who are willing to stand. You know, Dr. Jeffers should have come out and said, look, I endorse a heretic. She denied the deity of Christ, the eternal sonship of Jesus. She came out last year and said, well, I don't really teach prosperity theology. You can go online and read her most recent letter came out last week endorsing prosperity theology. That's just a different gospel. She's a false teacher. He should have never ever have endorsed her, should have had some more spine, steel in his spine, and stood up for what was right. So a disappointment to me. 